Bonjour, ni hao, comme estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. Okay, so today we're talking to Brent Annals and Brent's history has been really interesting. He used to work at Facebook, used to work at Uber, used to work at a very famous global advertising agency. But today we're talking to him about partnerships because that's what he's been doing the best part of the last part of his career and specifically big partnership deals which create these step change growth opportunities. So it's a really interesting area and he's been doing this mostly in the services area as well, which is really key. That's my area of specialty as well. So what gets lost sometimes is that you can use partnerships for distribution and sales as well, not just from a brand awareness or consideration level. So partnerships are really key because you're basically outsourcing your sales process and leveraging the growth potential of another person's business. And it doesn't get talked about enough. So I hope you like this episode. It's really interesting, kind of short, and Brent is just a wealth of information. And what's I think really key here is that he's been through web 1.0, 2.0, and now working in web 3.0. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Brent Annals. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be on. Yeah, mate. I, I've been following you on LinkedIn for a little while. I really loved your posts. It's obvious that off the bat, you know what you're talking about, being there, done that, just by the specificity of what you're talking about and just found your history really interesting. And one of them caught my eye in particular, which was the the partnerships. I think you did a couple of posts on Uber and a couple other things. And I was just like, oh, wow, that's so true. And I think it's, it's one of these areas that I've covered before for more of that sort of affiliate online partnership-y angle, more of a content partnership or sales partnership play at a more sort of direct B2C level. But I was just thinking, I really want to talk to someone about massive partnerships, you know, this step change growth partnerships that you do with big enterprises or big brands. And I, I read some of your stories and anyway, uh, here we are. Terrific. Great. Yeah, great. It's a, it's a fascinating area. So good to talk about. Yeah, well, no one talks about it. So, um, and especially I think marketers, they kind of get stuck in this marketing communications field. And but before that, you did mention the the skill of anyone, especially in tech, to pitch your idea in 90 seconds is a really good exercise. So over to you, in 90 seconds, what are smart token labs do? Hey, we make token smart. <laughs> That's hey, pretty I'll keep short. Going for you for just, for, I'll, give you, I'll give you another 85 seconds. Okay. So, so basically, we're an open source software development company. We're a 40-person team distributed around the world. We're building a, smart, a programmable smart token interface to build bridges between Web 2 and Web 3. So we're basically making it easier for large Web2 brands to enter into Web3 and Web3 use cases to sort of tap back into the scale of Web2 through products like Brand Connector and Brand Extender. Okay, I like it. What is Web123, just really quickly? Look, I mean, there's there's all the cliched versions of it. It's just new iterations of the internet. You know? Well, just people like there's put a decarmation line in here to say, hey, that's that's old and now we're two and now we're three. Uh, but, you know, literally, generally, it's a progression, right? It's Yeah, it's a, it's a progression. It's an evolution. It's new technology that underpins it. It's um, I think where we are today is a more, particip- more, you know, on the cusp of a more participatory, more open internet than we've ever had before. Um, one where, where consumers and users potentially own their data, they own a stake in the things that they're participating in, they're, they're help creating to build. So it's a really fascinating iteration of the internet. You know, read one was, for me, web one was kind of like websites and web two was mobile, was the mobile internet and, you know, mobile apps and that the transformation between sort of out of, out of stage one 
where we all thought it was dot coms and then it became something much different. And then stage two, we had the mobile internet and the, and the explosion of mobile apps. And we never really knew what they were going to be until we started to see businesses like, you know, Uber and, and Airbnb emerge and these marketplace-based businesses. And, you know, Web3, we're kind of at that coming out stage where it's, it's not really, you know, generative art-based um, NFP, NFTs and it's not DeFi 1.0. We're not quite sure what it's going to be, but it's going to be super interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, I have some specific experience in, uh, you know, 3D modeling uh, with with a, a firm that I did that was sort of taking e-commerce into 3D modeling instead of dealing with like 2D images. And it was just such a step change, I think, for a lot of the orthodox e-commerce world um, that I then thought, oh, well, if we're going to go into this metaverse sort of Web3 virtualization kind of world, um, surely the first step would be to have the 3D model of your products. And it was just amazing how many firms didn't do that. There was this sort of orthodox view of photo shoot, static 2D images, maybe some kind of video, um, but that's about it. And I just thought, well, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, there's metaverses, but you need to have 3D assets to do anything. So why don't you have them? And it was, a, it was a strange sort of moment. And that's when I sort of found out that some of this is just lip service. And um, I think there's some interesting firms doing uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, any in particular that you can talk about? Or? Oh, gee. Um... Sort of pushing the bounds or early pioneers that are actually like validating a business model. I think, you know, a lot of people are using these kind of phrases like catchphrases and buzzwords in rooms, but not really doing anything commercially out of them. But, you know, I've heard, for example, you know, well, Snoop yeah, yeah, I mean, look, I just see all that as early stage experimentation. So, um, you know, the simple truth is that we, the, the, the first mass adoption sort of like major consumer or business application that, that truly levers, leverages, you know, blockchain, smart contracts, tokenization hasn't, hasn't arrived yet. So we don't have that, um, that thing that sort of moves us beyond innovators and early adopters. Yep. So at the moment, we're sort of like, you know, when they're in, we're largely in the analogy metaphor stage. We're, we're like the information superhighway, right? We're trying to make sense through use cases that nobody can really understand. Um, the things that, the things that you know, and, and, and it's kind of a unique beast, Web3, because of the tokenization element of it. So the, the ability for people to trade you know, you know, they're incentivized to be part of these communities and incentivized to be part of these projects and incentivized to be part of these protocols, which is kind of like distorting the whole thing. Hmm. Um, the things, but the things that I'm super interested in is, you know, there's, there's just no question that community action, um, to, p- people, people will mobilize around things that they care about in ways that's never occurred before. And that will happen through the governance and the incentive possibilities of tokenization. So um, the things that excite me the most are things like, you know, Climadow and um, what's the other one? It's called, I think it's called Earth Hour or Earth, Earth Dow. And, you know, it's basically the ability to um, mobilise as a group of people, take a stake in something, have, have decision-making input and, you know, to do things. I mean, Climadow in its, in its simplest form is about... Um, buying up carbon credits to to make it too expensive to pollute. And, you know, that's that's an early stage experiment that was part of DeFi 2.0, which I'm not exactly sure where that's at today, but it was a way for you to mobilise, you know, alongside your friends and put a, put a stake in something where you did generate a financial return, but you're actually doing things that essentially governments couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And I think, I I'm getting the name wrong, I think it's Earth, Earth Dow, but... Um, 
that you know they're they're basically it's a no code solution to to set up you know these um, web three based project create build a DAO organize a community um, organize the tokenomics you know and they're doing doing fascinating things in in mental health and climate it's it's that stuff where I think we're going to see the true change of the world All the brand stuff's interesting as well the new business models are interesting and it's all coming hasn't landed yet but. <laughs> Um, that's what that's what sort of gets me up in the morning. And just for everyone else, like DAO's decentralized autonomous organization, yes, organization, yes, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. I mean, I've seen the same thing. Um, I think communities were sort of the first step. I mean, I'm doing this for a client right now where we're building our community, and then the community is like a feedback loop for then product iterations and packagings and gestion, right? Which is generally used to be a pretty static sort of uh, process with marketing. In terms of you do formalized market research, you know, then you have an internal discussion around it, and obviously we all know what happens there. The politics gets involved, and then you know maybe the company then doesn't really express the needs of the market in a purest sense. But I suppose you know getting rid of some of that sorry, that politics and intermediaries in that decision making process, you get a more pure expression of like wants and uh, market wants, and then you know what the, the company can kind of produce to satisfy those wants. Uh, and that's kind of where I see these things kind of like coming into it, and and perhaps you know the infrastructure su- such as the you know the company you're working for now is sort of a, a leg up to that transition from old business models and new ways of doing things. So um, it's exciting. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and, yeah, and at a commercial level, I mean, it's super interesting. I worked at Uber for a couple of years and Uber's the classic example, just at a, at a business innovation level where the drivers should have had a bigger stake in the in the success of Uber. They should have been effectively held a stake that reflected the contribution that they made. Now, that wasn't that's not possible in a traditional organisation with, I mean, at some level, maybe it would have been, but it just wasn't the way things were done. But you know, it would be possible with a new version of marketplace businesses today, both on the demand and the supply side, you're going to see them tokenized and you're going to be able to see participants who early stage, just like creators, early stage participants who help drive the liquidity on each side of the marketplace will, will have a stake in it and they will benefit from accelerating the growth. You do mention Uber and this is where the sort of partnership thing came from. You said something that's really interesting. You said enterprise partnerships for startups are like gold dust. They're flaky and rare. What do you mean by that? And what exactly, if you had to define a partnership, what is it in your, your mind? Yeah, good question. So um, they're flaky and rare because small companies partnering with large companies successfully is, um, is exceedingly rare. It doesn't, normally, it doesn't normally work out. And why is that though? Well, just because they're incredibly complex things to pull off and small companies don't know how big companies operate and big companies believe that they're market makers for small companies and big companies have lots of layers of bureaucracy and small companies don't know how to contract with big, big companies and there's so many reasons, right? It, it is like gold dust, but, but if you can pull it off, it can, it can be a market maker for you. My career, you know, I've worked, I've worked across a range of different disciplines, including sales and marketing and partnerships. And partnerships has been, you, you mentioned before, like affiliate and referral, like the, the sort of more performance media service. I know you've got a lot of experience in that. I, I've touched the, touched the edges of that, but that's not really my core experience area. It is these sort of partnership intersection with big and small companies. So I think typically there's, um, there's three types. There's, there's brand partnerships growth partnerships, and then sort of product slash distribution partnerships. They're the ones that I've had most experience in. I've seen seen around the traps. The brand partnership is your typical innovation type of partnership where a larger legacy business will look to sidle up alongside a, a sexy startup with, with a bit of brand equity and do some stuff to demonstrate that they're interesting and they're cool. And then maybe it may go a level or two below that, but it's typically operates at a fairly superficial level where it's sort of announcement driven and PR driven and 
sort of some projects and some toads in the water, but it doesn't really deliver material growth. That's where most of them start and finish, to be perfectly honest. Okay. Growth partnerships are maybe you're closer to a sort of scale-up. When I worked at Facebook and at Uber, we were still scale-ups alongside, you know, companies like Westpac and Optus and Telstra and Microsoft, who are, who are the, the companies and, and IGA that I, that I partnered with. We were nevertheless seen as the, the smaller player in the relationship, just given where, where the business were. So those sort of growth partnerships are typically sort of based around customer acquisition. And, you know, in Uber's case, it might be trying to recruit more drivers or recruit more riders. You've both got sort of overlapping customer bases. You know, Optus might have 12 million customers in Australia. Uber might have 1.5 million. There's a sort of overlap there. There's a benefit exchange. But ultimately, you're both, Optus might be trying to deliver benefits to their customers and improve retention by by giving them cool loyalty perks. And, and Uber might be super focused on, acquiring new customers. Those ones typically fall into two buckets. They're either binding or non-binding. What I mean by that is that there are commercially binding terms or there are not. And it's amazing how many of them are not. Yeah. So, and they're the, and basically that's, that's why 95% of those don't work either. Yeah. So unless, unless you enter into a growth partnership with, with a large corporate, and I made this post the other day that at Uber, the edict from the business development, I worked in the global BD team and we, we were only responsible for these big trajectory change and growth partnerships. And the edict was, if you couldn't fit the entire deal on a BlackBerry screen, then it wasn't a real deal. And what they meant by that was you could reduce an, you know, an, a two-year partnership with a, with a bank down to two or three core commercial terms. They're going to deliver this many riders and if they don't, they'll pay this much per rider that they're short. We're going to deliver them this, this, and if we don't, we're going to pay them that, right? And everything else is just noise, right? So you can have, and, and typically you'll have these really long-winded agreements and you'll talk about shared values and visions and, and, and what the announcement's going to look like. You'll even have a really detailed program of work, you know, where they'll, they'll talk to like how many email sends they're going to do and how many SMSs they're going to do and how many times they've touched their customer base and all this stuff. And the reality is that all of that always changes. And typically the partnership teams that negotiate these deals don't actually control the marketing calendar of work. They'll, they'll check in with the CRM team, but there's all these reasons why those things don't work. So at some level, like we never cared what they put in the activity schedule. We just cared whether they'd pay us for every rider they fell short. Most won't do those. You know, it reminds me of, um, is it Charlie Munger? It's like, Show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. It reminds me very much that that quote. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, like yeah, when you get, when you get an agency right. or any sort of thing, and you're it's all based on this promise of a future state. And I'm like, well, really, it's just all talk until that happens, and it either occurs or it doesn't. And that's kind of what people want. They don't really care how you get there as long as it's not damaging to both brands. You know, everything else is just like, well, it doesn't matter. You know, how we achieve the outcome. Well, that's exactly right. And you know, I'll give you another example from Uber. You know, I partnered with um, with a very large insurance company and. Their, their brand essence, their brand platform is, is innovation, right? So they, they consider themselves the innovator in the market. And they were the first to offer rideshare insurance in Australia to drivers wow. before Uber was regulated. Right? So they legitimately were innovative at a product level. And they came to us and wanted to partner. And basically, we just went straight to the heart of it, right? And we said, if you want to partner with us, you're making a statement that you believe in rideshare Okay, we know that you're spending $5 million a year on taxis. So we will require you 
to convert in the first 12 months, 50% of that to Uber travel for business. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do it, if you don't spend 2.5 with this, you need to write us a check for whatever you're short. Wow. So it's pretty pointed, but before that, right, there's so many, there's such broad statements about innovation and partnership and with same vision and they've done the product, right? So it's like, look, and basically what we're saying is you're going to write a check to us for $2.5 million, but you're going to save 30% of what you would have spent with taxis. And you're going to have these other benefits. You're going to be able to track the travel because of how Uber business works. And you're going to have actually more visibility of, of where your staff travels. There's all these benefits. So if you actually believe in this, then you'll have no problem signing that. Then what, what is in a partnership then? Um, we did mention some of these affiliates sort of online uh, referral and affiliate programs and that kind of thing. You know, we, we all know the names like PartnerStack and all those kind of things, which is kind of, quite sort of digital acquisition and preferenced by a lot of, you know, digital online sort of only products. But then yeah. there's the sort of stage that you're talking about, which is, you know, what I'd call more enterprise level partnerships or, or, or traditional partnerships in the true sense of the word or strategic partnerships. You know, is there a delineation there between the two camps or is there something that's like, a, you know, a collab on Instagram that people call a JV or a partnership, but it's just really someone's sharing an account and tagging someone? Like, where do we draw the line here? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So, so I mean, I, I, my experience is I, there was a third bucket of partnerships which are product-based partnerships where you're integrating. So that's, that's basically Uber being integrated into Google Maps, yep. for example, yep. or Miro being integrated into Zoom, yep. those sorts of partnerships, right? So those three categories of partnerships can all deliver trajectory change and growth is my experience if you get them right, even the brand ones, even the, the first category, if trust and credibility is, is what you need to solve for, then they can still do it. The other ones that the, I, I sort of bucket all those other ones, like influencer things and um, affiliates and referrals as sort of like media deals, performance deals. Yeah. So they're super important and you've got to get them right. But And there's brand considerations around that where your brand shows up. But I, I sort of see them all in that sort of performance area. So they don't quite fit into this, this bucket of stuff. The, you know, one of the exceptions, but Uber, part of their playbook was how they went to market. When they land, when they turned up in Australia and they turned up in Sydney and they turned up in Melbourne, they had this partnership model at a city-based level where they did these super interesting and innovative on-demand stunts. So you could get Messina ice cream on demand from your Uber on a, on a special. There was the uh, the puppies thing as well. You could, uh, I remember ordering this. There was like yeah, cats or yeah. puppies that would come to your office as well. There was a, um, I think that was the guide dog. Yes. I think the Sydney team did yes. that. And yeah, it was pet a puppy and, yeah. you know, show your support for, I think, I think that was guide dogs, but um, that, that's a really good example. So, so Uber was famous and the city teams ran all these and they did an unbelievable job. And it was part of a playbook when they entered into a city. They would do these sort of like, it was part of, you know, it was the brand essence was kind of, cool, innovative, fun. Yep. And all of those stunts delivered on that messaging. And there was a PR on the back end of it, potentially so, as well as some social media PR sort of like secondary effects, obviously. That's right. And so the gap between those and a trajectory changing growth partnership is one that's going to deliver you, it's going to fundamentally change the directory of three parts of the business, either the demand side of the business, the riders, mm -hmm. the supply side of the business, the drivers, or the cost structure of the business. You know, they're aiming to operate at a whole nother level. And like, how did you originally get into this? Like, you've got a pretty storied career, which, you know, I'll summarize at the beginning, but like, you know, do you just fall into these deals? Like, I find a lot of partnership people come from a channel sales background or enterprise sales background or... You know, they come from corporate strategy and they sort of then go into a bit of a partnership deal. But either way, you're working at pretty senior levels if we're talking those strategic or growth partnerships, right? It's a pretty fundamental layer of business strategy, I almost call it, rather than marketing. Would, would that be a correct assessment? Or? I, I guess so, yeah. I mean, for me personally, the way I fell into it was I've um, been actively involved in 11 startups since, I mean, my career started. 
you know, I'll date myself, but, you know, my career started back in 1989. That was my first job. So I've been working for a while and I've done 11 startups since like the mid nineties. My first partnership experience was my first company was called Exciting Alternatives. And, um, the only thing that was really cool about the business was the name of the business, Exciting <laughs> Alternatives, but we were trying to, um, we were, we were launching Garana, you know, the stuff yep. that's in the, the G drink. Yep. This was back in the early nineties and we were launching that into so when it first came to australia it was just like a big bag of ground up seed and we were basically distributing it through um through cafes and and nightclubs because it keep you up at night they ground it up in glasses of milk and give it to you over the bar so that was like very 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 first example right of go to market for me where there was no marketing budget and there was no cool posters and there was no did there was no internet and you had to find a way to get your product in front of people. You know, I started by, by giving it to my mates around at their house, you know, and then we had to try and get it into bars. And you, you were kind of doing a partnership with the bar, right? They were taking a bit of a risk that maybe this was cool, maybe it wasn't, you know. But then probably the most, you know, I did a, I did two startups before. My, my third one was called Mymetrics, and that was a first-generation ad tech startup. And um, that was in like 99 into 2000. And we launched, so we are an Australian business, really sophisticated multivariate testing solution for digital channels, um, SaaS product. And um, we launched it into into San Francisco and um, turned out to be the sort of tail end of the dot-com boom. But, you know, we had to find a way to, to take that to market. And so over four years, we partnered with four different companies and three of them were, were major digital marketing sort of advertising networks in different parts of the world. So... The, the first one, when we went to San Francisco, we partnered two companies. One was called New Canoe, and they were the hot, believe it or not, they were the hottest sort of e-commerce digital marketing shop in San Francisco at that time. When it, when we launched into San Francisco, we went and set up in their office, you know, and they were going to take, because we, we had the answer to, to how digital marketing would work. You could run these interactive marketing experiments to, you know, we could, we could serve 1,024 variations of a landing page and then dissect what, what worked and what didn't. And so we partnered with those guys and we're in their office, you know, so we did this, this partnership deal with them. We're in their office. We were sitting amongst their team. They were going to take us to all of their clients. And the other, other deal we did, which is also a partnership deal, was with Bain. And Bain was the preeminent management consulting firm to the dot-com crowd in Silicon Valley at the time. So they had everyone. They had eBay, Hewlett Packard, and they basically took a stake in our company through the partner's own personal investment fund, they had this e-squad fund where they'd put aside their own salary and invest in, they only invested in a couple of companies a year and they invested in us. Wow. And their go-to-market strategy for us was they were going to walk us into every major corporate in America, the top five or six whale clans, and they would use our product and there's your go-to-market strategy. I've heard that same promise from every startup investor I've ever spoken to. <laughs> all invested business and I promise well, you to, to introduce then, you to all my network and sell you to everybody, right? Exactly right. And and the, But these guys are the hottest of the hot. Yeah. They are the number one guys like and girls, but not a single client out of either of those partnerships. <laughs> now, it was a unique period in time, right? The dot-com collapse yeah. happened and everything fell apart. But then we rebooted and went to London. So we came back to Sydney and we rebooted and went to London. And in London... We partnered with two other agencies. So there's a group called Preferro who are still around today. They're pretty, actually pretty big digital marketing agencies. Same deal. Partnered with them we, before going into market. We pitched, you know, talked to a bunch of companies. They, they got super excited about our product, super excited about our tech, believed our tech would differentiate them in market. And we went and, you know, based out of their office. And um, we were there for like eight months. 
didn't sell a single didn't single single product. And, and, why, single project. and why is that? Um, what, what, what's the sort of learnings there on those two things? Like, is it kind of pushing your product, or is it like transference of trust, or just like no market product market fit in this case? Or it was two things, right? So it's, it says two two things. One thing about us, and one thing about the market. I think about these, you know, people who are willing to partner in these in these contexts, right? So the thing it said about us is we were we were way too early and way too complicated. So our product was, you know, people were barely doing A/B testing. It was actually a massive ask to get a banner campaign in market. So when we're rocking up talking about discrete choice modeling, you know, we, our pitch was like it was horrible. <laughs> we would basically spend 20 minutes trying to explain to them why discrete choice market experiments by, that delivered revealed preference were far superior to conjoint state of preference surveys. And, you know, we weren't even on, on digital marketing at that point, you know, so we just... We didn't read the market. Our, our product was too complicated. We're out of our time. We're trying to educate at the same time ourselves. So that's yeah. that's all about us. <laughs> but about partners, right? It hasn't really changed, right? This in the twenty-two years since then, I still encounter it all the time today. You know, which is why I learned so much at Uber, which is everybody wants to partner with the new, coolest, hottest, sexiest thing. And, and we were hot and sexy. There's no question. That's why the Bain guys invested in mm. us. But they couldn't read the room either. So they just thought all of their, everybody overestimates how easy it will be to close a sale, how differentiating this solution will be. That's the mistake you see. These partnerships just go from a sort of a buzz and excitement and shared values and shared vision and you're cool and we're cool and we, we match up all this way. And then the rubber hits the road and it all falls apart. Yeah. I mean, I've personally done this as well multiple times and exactly the same experience. I'm mm. like, but the only solution I found was to make it really easy to sell, easy to understand, easy to sell, easy to implement, easy to use, really clear value proposition. And then the challenge is sometimes if you're selling through the agency, for example, in your case, or another intermediary, you've then got to train them to sell it. So they have to be able to sell it as good as you can. Like you can come on a co-joint call or a sales meeting together and sort of act as partners. But like you've got to have the whole thing packaged up on a platter to give to somebody else then train them on a platter to then give to somebody else and sell it to them. Until you get to that stage, I find it just doesn't work um, because you can't sell it as well as you can. And and sometimes you can't sell it well anyway to start with. So then it just like... That's exactly... And that's why it's so rare. So, yeah. you know, particularly with technology-based products or, or anything that's complicated. Because in... And particularly in the early stages. So if you're a startup, right, you, you don't have necessarily product market fit and or credibility. So expecting anybody else to, it's always true, people buy people. So, you know, your first sales are going to come through those, you know, founder sales are super important and everybody overestimates how, how quickly you'll be able to move from founder sales to sort of scaling a sales team. Partnerships are no difference, right? So if, if you couldn't scale a sales team to do it, then you're never going to be able to get a partnership to work <laughs> if that's what they're you know, selling. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, and so, and also just on that note, I mean, we we're just talking about some some prospects. So you worked with an agency, you worked with an investment firm who were then consulting to someone. So yeah, I think you know, this part of the discussion touches on distribution in a services sense. And a lot of, I think people don't talk about this and that's why I want to talk to you because a distribution for services often goes through reseller or wholesalers and networks and partnerships. It's like, it's quite messy. It's not like, um, you have a retail product, goes into a warehouse, goes to a wholesaler, sell direct, like bang, Bob's your uncle. But same thing happens with services or can happen. Uh, you know, integrations, package mm. deals into phone plans, for example. You know, you get a you know, a discount off, I don't know, whatever this other subscription is, maybe it's Uber. And, and I find thinking about distribution that way is really interesting because then you start exploring 
oh, actually, what's within our supply vertical from start to finish all the way out to the end customer? And then, okay, what are the other adjacent sort of horizontals that we can kind of grow across or, or other companies that we may have not even thought of that have overlap with our target market that we could approach? So I've got a process for it, but I wanted to ask from you, I mean, how do you identify potential partners in the first place? I mean, there, there are no easy solutions. So, so number one rule is never start with the category leader. You know, it's, it might sound a bit trite, but it's true. So you always have to start with the number two player or the challenger. You need someone who's, who, who, who needs a win. So number one is that. Number two is it's never going to work. You can't go in cold. So again, like we're talking about a 95% fail rate in my experience. So you're going to need to go in through a trusted, either through a direct personal con- relationship or a referral, or you find a partner that can take you in. So one of the one of the services success I had, and I had this at Facebook. So I basically partnered with PwC. And so I was looking after tech, telco and entertainment at, at Facebook. And I'd run the Telstra business at DDV for six years prior to going to Facebook and looking after telco. And we created this incredible targeting solution at Facebook for telcos. We could target based on, you know, phone, handset, network, how long they'd had the plan for, just incredible data targeting. And I couldn't get I couldn't get any traction with Telstra. And I ironically I made a lot of traction with with Optus. So my first sort of real momentum as as a sales lead at Facebook was doing this innovation-based partnerships with Optus. But the way that I got into Telstra was I went to PwC and their digital innovation team and I explained to them the solution that I had in Telco and basically they took it to Telstra, you know, and because Telstra had heard the story and, you know, to be fair to them, they're number one in the category. It was the same old thing, right? Had this incredible breakthrough solution, but they're used to doing the business in a certain way. They don't need it. They don't need a, a you know, a, a trajectory change of win. They're, they're sort of like, they're, they're sort of a bit, bit sceptical about, what they'd heard about Facebook to that point. So there's a whole lot of barriers. So at that point, pivot to a third party who's hugely respected in there and equip them to do the sale and they sold it in. And I carried that through to a couple of other businesses that I was in where I would go, you know, so that's an example where a, where a services business can absolutely open the door for you. So I think the three things are, you're never going to win with a, with a category leader first out. You're going to have to find a way in that's a warm way in. You just have to double down, triple down on what the win is for them. Whales have a view that they are market makers and largely that's true. And whether it is or not, it doesn't matter because that's the view they have. So if inside that organisation, if anybody thinks that it's a bit too weighted towards the startup, the deal will get killed. You'll never know why, but it could get killed on 20 different dimensions. Yeah, you know, it's funny you said, you know, 95% don't work, right? And, and I think I commented, I had a bit of banter with you the other week on social media about partnerships sort of remind me of that salesperson who's always about to close the big deal, but never does. <laughs> and I find partnerships yeah, yeah. have a very high failure rate as well. They have these very long negotiation phases and everybody's on board. And then it's sort of like legal gets involved and every, because it touches every single department, often at, at both companies, you know, they, they just has this extended sort of maceration over years and then it just falls apart. And I was working in Silicon Valley for a first startup and they were trying to do a partnership with Yelp at the time. And, um, you know, this ex-consultant was going to close the big deal and, you know, two, two years later, well, still hasn't closed and I think it's been scuttled, but, you know, it's all full of promise to start with. And, and why do you think sort of those failures happen? Like, is it just some of the things you mentioned before? Is there any sort of like do's and don'ts here in particular that can avoid failure? One of the things that people buy on emotion, 
right? And they, they buy ideas, they don't buy strategies. And so even with big partnerships, I've had a lot of success with this and I learned this in advertising, you know, the, the advertising world, the absolute masters at, you know, cause it's all we do, right? We sell ideas. And so when you sell an idea to a client and they're the most fragile things in the world, right? An idea can be broken apart, die a thousand cuts, but a really powerful idea when you pitch an idea to a, to a client and they just light up around it, did this thing for um, Telstra years ago where we it was the Olympics, the London Olympics, and they were key sponsors and, and we pitched them and they already had the base of their sponsorship strategy worked out for what they were going to do and how they were going to activate. And I thought it was, and we, we kind of thought it was lame what they were going to do. So we pitched them this idea, which was basically, it was like, look, this is the Super Bowl moment for you. And you have to, you're going to have all this airtime on Channel 9. You have to have something that lights people up. And so we're going to re-record Land Down Under. And that's the idea. Right? And so we pitched this idea of re-recording Land Down Under and the Super Bowl moment and everybody's going to love what your brand does at halftime. And that sort of thing can survive a thousand cuts because everybody mobilizes around, I want to be part of that. First big deal I sold for Uber was, was with Optus and... We did Uber umpire on Australia Day, where you could get a Test cricket umpire delivered to your backyard for two years. To, <laughs> to your backyard cricket. Of, to officiate two overs as backyard cricket. What, like a yeah. real umpire? And it, was, and it was like, it was tight. Yeah, a real Test cricket umpire. <laughs> it was umpire on demand. But it was much bigger. It was, it was 10 times bigger than anything that ever been done by Uber before. And everybody bought into that. So I think that's the number one differentiator, right? You need to find a way to electrify you, and you, you do it through an idea. And so what the ad guys do, ad guys and girls do, is they name the idea. So a strategy gets a name. It's still just a strategy, right? But it's the, kind of it like ends up project, an idea. like operation, whatever, or project, whatever. Yeah, yeah I get whatever. It. You know, I did I did this one for Canon when I was at Facebook and um, it was, they were launching a DSLR and we had to go out and, and pitch our media plan to... 20 people from the agency and Canon and our, our idea was sunsets. Everybody likes sunsets. Well, exactly right. And you're just like, well, what the hell is that about? You know? And so it was just a normal media strategy, right? It had a thousand different moving pieces, but the strategy was no one cares about DSLRs because they've got a phone in there. They've got a camera in their pocket. The only time a DSLR shines is in low light conditions. The, the one of those is sunsets. You're going to own sunsets in newsfeed. Right? And everybody just gets, we started the pitch with, um, I don't know if you know the Powderfinger song, Sunsets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we started the pitch with that. So we're out there to present a media plan. We said, we've got an idea for you. Yeah, yeah, we've got the media plan, but we've got an idea. Does anybody want to hear our idea? And the whole room's silent. And nobody <laughs> said anything. I'm still standing up and go, but, but it's a really cool idea. Does anybody want to hear it? And somebody finally said, yeah, I want to hear your idea. And I said, great. It's called Sunsets. Ross, play the music and boom. We haven't even started anything and, and Powderfinger's screaming out sunsets. And so out of that meeting, everybody in that room went back to their desk, went home that night. Stood on and the they idea. Could, they could, yep. Yeah, and they, could, and they could say, oh, we're going to do this thing called sunsets with Facebook. And suddenly we got like probably 10x what we would have got out of the media budget for that idea. The same strategy would have just, you know, it, it's it's funny. I've noticed the same thing. I mean, I, I think you know everyone underestimates. This is perfect. Peter Thiel quote about uh, everyone ignoring the importance of sales in their whole life and undermining mm -hmm. it when it's so essential to everything that we do. And I think yeah. internally as well. Like if you have a project internally, giving it a name and then selling it up the chain and getting people on board creates this magnet. And like if 
it could be a really commercially viable thing, but you've got to sell it internally as well and get people in and, and in an emotional sense. And sometimes calling it an idea like that and branding it is, is a perfect idea. So. Yeah, I've, I've had amazing success with that. You know, it's stadium of little fans for Telstra. They want to know what that is. It just sounds cool. You know, I want to be part of that. So it's amazing how that can um, that can win with partnership strategy as well. If you haven't branded it in some way and you, ha- you can't energize people about it and they can't get emotionally engaged in it in some way, all the reasons it can die will eventually catch up with you. Okay, so um, speaking about Peter Thiel, here's the sort of question that I ask everyone. I was like, thinking about partnerships uh, in particular. What is something about partnerships that everyone believes but you know to be wrong? We've probably mentioned a couple already. <laughs> Yeah, we probably have. I mean, I I think I'm going to the, um, okay, so product-led growth is something that everybody just believes is is the holy grail, right? And the product teams are the the smartest ones in the room, right? So I believe that that can be just as wrong as anything else. So I remember when when I was at Uber and there was this flagship product integration between Uber and Facebook Messenger. And everybody was excited about that. As you, as you would expect, right? Messengers in billions of handsets around the world and you're going to be able, or able to order an Uber from Messenger without, leave, without leaving the Messenger app, right? And I remember hearing it and I'm going, wow, that's epic. How would that work exactly? And you come back to the same old thing, right? Well, so the use case is you're going to the pub with your friends and you're all meant to be there at 7 o'clock and you've all ordered Ubers in the app and the chat's open and you can see whether Brent, who's running late, whether he's really on time or not because you see where he is on his Uber trip. And I'm like, I don't think I want someone to see where I am in my Uber. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably late because I'm not coming, you know. And so, like, it just at that point, right, it just fell apart. I just, like, that's – don't get me wrong, right, I wasn't the guy who, who, who truly understood at that point, right, that this wasn't going to work. But in retrospect, it made a lot of sense to me. So the persona testing, the use case just didn't stack up. Mm. So, you know, that's probably probably one of the ones that I, I didn't see another distribu- product distribution partnership work at Uber apart from Google Maps, which is just an absolute game changer. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's, it's super hard to make. It's, it's funny because uh, I think one of the people I really respect, so what people don't understand about product-led growth is it's actually product and marketing-led growth. And it's like the best PLG actually is marketing and product working together in a large proportion of marketing. And it's like all the best product people I know are always about getting customer feedback, putting that back into reverse feedback. And I'm like, yeah, you're doing market research. That's that's marketing on a product level. Like, <laughs> but there's this uh, I don't know for some reason at tech where there's this product over here and then there's marketing or growth over here and they sort of just don't really connect with each other. And then you know, product starts creating these product marketing roles. That's just marketing. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's it's just it's all got pretty complicated these days. Like the distinction between all those things and where they sit. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, brand is just a collection of product experiences. They're all totally interrelated from from my perspective. And you can only tell a powerful brand story if the product experience are consistently delivering an amazing thing for people you can't reverse engineer it but then you can't but if you don't amplify it properly with the right storytelling then it sort of it doesn't it doesn't really turbocharge it either so. yeah exactly just a couple of questions to finish that i ask everybody what's a book that you're reading or have read recently that's really sort of changed your mind or way of thinking for the better that you'd recommend so i'm not much of a reader but and it's not on point but I, i've been reading a, um, a spiritual book for the last every day for the last two years one chapter every day for two years um, called i am that by Sri Nizagadatta. And uh, it's been, it's been quite transformative. Okay, and and what sort of like vibe is that? Is that like a meditation thing or like a? He's an Indian guru who's perceived to be a, a self-realized individual. 
It's 101 chapters. It's a dialogue between him and somebody who goes and sits with him and is basically seeking a relief from suffering, the eternal answers. And it's just a dialogue between him and the other person. There's just a, there's just a handful of themes that come through again and again and again. For me, letting go, acceptance, none of it really matters. We're here for a short time. Chop wood, carry water. Don't get caught up. It don't sweat the detail. You know, like I'm I'm sort of like Mickey paraphrasing for for this audience, but I actually earnestly believe that 85% of what we do in marketing and, and growth and partnership doesn't isn't going to make any difference. And so it's the 15% that will change the game. And and it's often hard to work out what that is. So we just spend so much time agonizing over over stuff that you just need to sort of get it, get it out. You know, I said that recently, actually, in a, in a tweet, I was like, look, you know, uh, really good marketing is just like an exercise in failure. But the problem is it's sold on mm. the opposite, complete opposite ratio. It's like, this will definitely work. So then you get this like eternal disappointment, this mixed match of expectations versus reality that then everyone goes, oh, well, marketing didn't work. But I'm like, if you, if you go into it going, actually, most of this is not going to work, but some of it will, and some of it will change the business. And let's be prepared to waste a lot of money and resources. This is the name of the game, but the good stuff will iterate on, we'll, we'll know what not to do, and we'll go in these sort of growth cycles, and we'll get there in the end. And it's like a very different mindset to let's put all our eggs in this campaign and it's going to work, it's going to work. And then, you know, generally it doesn't. Very rarely does it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think there's there's teams that sort of have that, that mindset or, or the other. So. And that used to be me, you know, I used to be super opinionated. I used to be very difficult to work with. I used to be a pain in the ass. <laughs> I used to believe that my opinions were, were, were more valid than others. And Did you um, work in an ad agency or something? Or? Well, you know, I worked everywhere. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just, it's just been more recently as I get older, you know. I, I just see the value in in slowing down a bit and, and letting everyone have their say and, and, you know, just testing lots of stuff. And it, it is that indefin- it's that indefinable thing. Great partnerships, great marketing, great product decisions. You know, they're those indefinable things. You know, there's a level of science and data around it, but you're always going to have to make these intuitive calls at certain points. And you're always going to have to respond, you know, have to make these decisions based on experience and feel and, and things like a momentum and emotion and those things are what guide you to what you should be doing more of and what you should be doing less of. If we're too too wound up about it, too serious about it, we probably miss the important stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What about, a, I think that's a great answer. What about a favorite website resource that you'd recommend other people learn about? So for me, it's, it's sort of like the Web3 crossover thing. So I, I did this fellowship program called Kernel last year, which is our fellowship program on Web3. You know, I'm fully in Web3 these days and I've been doing it for about a year. And at that point, I had very little experience or understanding of crypto or blockchain or tokens or what it all meant. And I applied for this program. It's about 250 people get it selected in each block. I did Kernel Block 4. And it's this hybrid, it's like one-third academic program, one-third accelerator program, one-third spiritual program. And it just covers everything about open decentralization, the history of money, value, meaning. Wow. Um, and you work in this sort of like really collaborative process. So I did that program and all of the content is completely available to anybody. So anyone can apply for the next block. But equally, you can just go and access the content and do the all the. It's all recorded. There's all the all the readings. It's just it's just the most one of the most transformative things that I've done and sort of like an educational experience thing. So yeah, I'd highly recommend that. K e r n e l from from Gitcoin. Oh, that's great. Um, it kind of reminds me of like Reforge, but in a sort of Web three context or something like. Oh, that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, like 
like that, but more spiritual. <laughs> what about over to you? What do you want to sort of promote and get the word out there about? I mean, obviously, Smart Token Labs, we, we make tokens smart. So we're here. We're here to help. We're here, here to help connect brands between Web 2 and Web 3. But the main thing is just probably at a personal level. I think in today's world, the gap between experience and opportunity has never been narrower. So particularly the, all the new Web 3 stuff, been through Web, Web 1, Web 2, 1, 3 now and all sorts of different startups. It's always a bit confronting. None of us ever know. The best thing you can do is have a bias to action and just get involved and do something. Don't be afraid of not knowing. But, you know, I don't think it's ever been the case. This is really what, you know, this next iteration is about, this more open open internet, right? Opportunity is more accessible than it's ever been before. Learning and experience is more, you can you can get it in a bite-sized way. You, know, you can do fractionalized involvement. You can get involved in an NFT project or a DAO. You can gather experience, which is going to be a springboard for opportunity to do all sorts of different things. That's just what I really encourage people to do. You know, I think you don't have to be stuck in anything for too long and you can enrich whatever you're doing by just getting a bit more experience in something else. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm a big fan of getting my hands dirty like like this. Just teach myself podcasting. Talk to somebody, you know, to start it up and you just kind of learn by doing. Exactly. And, you know, you're going to fail. It's going to look shitty at the beginning, but eventually you kind of get better. Then you talk to more people and they're like, oh, they give you a recommendation to do this. And you're like, oh, I'll tweak this. Or that's a great idea. You know, I'll put that in. And then you must have learned so much. So much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember sort of going at the beginning about podcasting going like, what the hell is an RSS thing? And like, why are we using them for for podcasting like isn't that some old school news thingy and i was like i was just so confused i'm like what the hell is this and um i'm like it's just an mp3 that people you know listen to it's audio like why does this have to be so complicated and then you go into this like other world and just the the quality of the people who listen to podcasts those people don't always watch youtube so either youtube podcaster or you're an audio podcaster and so coming back to use cases you'll get people that only listen to podcasts on a walk or at the gym and those people don't won't be watching a computer screen right so then i'll get these people going oh you need to put your things on youtube because that's how i watch my podcast and i was like okay and you know just all this like intricacy and, and then you know everyone uses their own little platforms and so much more complex than I ever thought uh, possible. Yeah, it's just amazing. You'll get very high quality people dedicating an hour of their time to listen to something. And some of these are seen. Yeah, and these are senior executives, busy people. Like, so to take an hour of their spare time away from everything else that, you know, kids and everything is is a huge ask. But there's some people just like, that's that's what they get off on and they love it. So um, anyway, that's kind of why I do it. So is there any way uh, in particular, if people really resonate with what we're talking about today, that they can get in contact with you? Or Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, I'm LinkedIn's the main medium for me. So I'm just Brent Annals on LinkedIn. There's not many people called Annals, A-N-N. E-double-L-S, so you'll find me, Brent Annals. Or, you know, if you want to follow our project, you know, we're, we're at TokenScript on Twitter. Okay, great. And uh, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. And yeah, let's, let's chat again soon. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, mate. Okay, so that's the last piece I'll do on partnership strategy for now. And that's the last of the nine core strategy episodes. And it also doubles as one about distribution, not just partnerships. But if you want to go deeper into partnerships and that side of the equation, we've also done a previous episode, season two, episode three with Peter and Ayan from Impact. And that's all about modern digital partnerships as well. So it's the perfect complement to this episode. And yes, we're finished. So we've done product, pricing, sales and distribution, promotional media, measurement, data and research, creative, segmentation, targeting, positioning and messaging strategy. So cover all of these nine, at least at a basic level, and you can't go wrong when it comes to maximizing your market opportunity and growth potential. So if you found this episode interesting or any of the others for that matter, let others know, please, by sharing the word. All this really helps everyone else do better work and makes everyone's lives much easier. 
Also, I'm interested to know what you thought about them as well. I'm always just a DM away on LinkedIn or Twitter, or just review this episode right now on whatever app that you're using, Apple, Spotify, etc. Think about joining the reserve newsletter at hybrancy.substack.com to ask any questions and get them answered. That's hybrancy with a Y. Press the bell alert icon right now to receive notifications on this app to avoid missing the next episode, which I drop roughly every seven to 10 days. And if you're interested in another episode, but not sure about spending an hour listening to it first, just go to Hybrancy YouTube channel where you will find hundreds of episode trailers and highlights all neatly categorized via the playlist function. But that's all for now. See you next week.